pain, suffering, and evil are indisputable realities, and they present the sharpest criticism against God's existence, the sharpest criticism. Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel struggled with this question. In his memoir, Night, he tells the story of a young boy who had been caught and hung by the Nazis for some infraction. As a deterrent, the rest of the prisoners were forced to file by the dead boy as he hung there. And Wiesel says that as they were passing by, he heard the voice of the man behind him saying, where is God now? And immediately, Wiesel says, another voice seemed to speak to him, a voice from inside his own head saying, God is hanging there dead on that gallows with that boy. God is dead. Because if God were alive, he could have not have allowed such unimaginable suffering, unimaginable suffering for so many innocent people to take place. That's the conclusion that Wiesel settled upon. It's not a new problem. A Greek philosopher named Epicurus lived 2,500 years ago. He wrote, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but he doesn't want to. He's either impotent or wicked. David Hume, the famous atheist of our age, said this, is God willing to prevent evil but, but cannot? Then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why hasn't he done it? We who are Christians, you and I, we believe that God is both all-powerful and all-good. We sang this morning, I sing the mighty power of God, right? We sang, oh Lord, you have been good to all generations. How can that be true if evil exists? This is one of the big stumbling blocks for people who don't believe in God. It's a major roadblock to faith for modern people. Modern people say that the fact that evil exists, that 42,000 people were buried alive and crushed to death in Turkey and Syria, and a million more have lost their homes, they say that the fact that this kind of terrible evil exists means that God is not all-powerful or he's not all-good, at least not all the time, or that maybe he doesn't exist at all. Sam Harris. Anybody hear Sam Harris? Yeah. He's known as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. He wrote a book called Letters to a Christian Nation. Let me read you what he says here. Examples of God's failure to protect humanity are everywhere to be seen. The city of New Orleans, for instance, was destroyed by a hurricane. But what was God doing while Katrina laid waste to their city? Surely he heard the prayers of those elderly men and women who fled the rising waters for the safety of their attics, only to be slowly drowned there. Do you have the courage to admit the obvious? Those poor people died talking to an imaginary friend. 
It's time we acknowledge how disgraceful it is for the survivors of a catastrophe to believe themselves spared by a loving God while the same God drowns infants in their cribs. Once you stop swaddling the realities of the world's suffering in religious fantasies, you will feel in your bones just how precious life is and indeed how unfortunate it is that millions of human beings suffer the most harrowing abridgments of their happiness for no good reason at all. Well, that's quite an argument. Kind of makes me wonder what makes Sam Harris so angry at the God that he doesn't believe in. That's the intellectual argument. The, but emotionally, the question becomes this one God, why haven't you helped me? You can think about someone else's suffering from an intellectual point of view when it's someone else's suffering, like the earthquake in Turkey. But when you are the one that's suffering, or you are involved with the people who are suffering, that's a, that's a different horse altogether. Now it's emotional. It's not just, why does God allow this? It's, why are you allowing this to happen to me? How long are you going to let this go on? Scripture's full of this. You just read through the Psalms. I finished reading the Psalms last night. How long, O oh Lord, how long? How long are you going to let my enemies overwhelm me? How long are you going to allow justice to prevail? How long are the evil going to have the upper hand? Psalm 6 is in your bulletin this morning. My soul is in anguish, Lord. How long? This is surely one of the questions of our age. But it's not just Christianity that has to provide a satisfying answer for this. All religious faiths are on the hook. All philosophical worldviews are on the hook for this, including atheism. The atheist says there is no God. The world is just random. It's just chance. It's just chaos. In this kind of world, there is no good or evil. Stuff just happens. It's cause and effect. And yet, the denial of God leads to a preposterous conclusion that the amoral world of the skeptic who can't even explain good is worse than the world of the believer who at least has some explanation for evil. Not one proponent of evolutionary ethics, which is the theory that our concepts of right and wrong somehow just evolved, not one proponent of that theory has explained how an impersonal, amoral first cause operating through a purely materialistic, non-moral process has produced a moral basis for life. Not one. Isn't it odd, of all the possibility, possible combinations of, of chance, all the permutations available that the universe might provide, that we end up with notions of good and bad and evil and, and beautiful? Isn't that strange that that would happen? If there isn't any God, then why do we call anything good or bad? Why not just call it purple or orange? Why is suffering bad and beauty good? In fact, from an atheistic viewpoint, suffering actually makes the case for God's existence. 
that the, the fact that the skeptic even asks, why do the innocent suffer? That question betrays the fact that there must be a God because for innocence to exist, there must be morality. And morality is transcendent. It does not evolve. The fact that we even have concepts like justice and injustice points to the fact that there must be a God. It's a kind of intuition that atheists can't get rid of. They just can't shake it. Now the teachers of Eastern religions have a different answer. Good and evil, they tell us, are simply equal and opposite aspects of the same reality, like two sides of the same coin. The universe is really all just one. So good and evil are just illusions, really, fabrications. They are a way of modeling reality. In fact, Buddhism is a religion that was founded for the sole purpose of providing an answer for the question of why people suffer. And in the end, Buddhism concludes there really isn't any suffering. It's all just an illusion. I wonder how satisfying that is for somebody being slowly crushed to death under mountains of earthquake rubble. Hinduism, on the other hand, teaches the idea of karma. We've all heard of that. That everything that happens to you in life happens because something you've done either in this life or in some past life that you're not even aware of. That good follows good and bad follows bad and you deserve whatever you're getting. Karma means there's no such thing as a bad thing happening to an innocent person. And therefore, compassion is skewed. It won't do any good to be compassionate to someone who is suffering because they deserve what they're going through. And if you alleviate that suffering, you're just prolonging the agony. You're just causing them to suffer more later. There's no free gifts. There's no mercy. There's no grace. You just get what you got coming. Compassion is only good for the one who gives it because that loads up your own karma for the next life. There is a third answer to the question of where is God when bad things happen. You can redefine him. You can make him either a little less good or a little less powerful. You can make him into a little God, God with a small g. There was a famous rabbi. His name was Harold Kushner. He wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's a classic. This was what Kushner did. His solution was to make God into a small g God. He said that God feels bad when bad things happen. He really does. His heart breaks when earthquakes level entire Turkish provinces. But he can't really do much about it because the world is so out of control that it's beyond his capability. He'll do his best. But there is no assurance he will be there for you. The problems are just too big for him. So, these are the answers that people give. But they are not satisfying answers. Let's think about Christianity's answer now, not because this is new for most of you, but because a lot of people wonder about it when the news is grim. First of all, Christianity affirms that suffering is real. 
Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. A lot of suffering over there in Turkey. The glory that's coming must be really good if all that suffering is not worth comparing. Paul doesn't tell us that suffering and evil are imaginary. They are not illusions. They are very, very real. And they are not something that results from karma either. Now, it's true that Paul does say in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And it's true that in some ways, maybe a lot of ways, we suffer because we foul up. We make bad choices. We act foolishly. And the consequences of that just follow naturally. But this is certainly not true in the absolute sense. 42,000 Turks didn't just have it coming when all those tectonic plates began to shift. Remember the time that Jesus and his followers were passing through a little town and they saw a man there on the side of the road. He had been blind from birth. The followers said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You know, we have a tendency to want to figure out the cause. We want to, why does this kind of stuff happen? And that's what they're doing, right? There must be a reason. And the reason in their mind boils down to sin. So whose sin was it? This is the paradigm of cause and effect. It's a little bit like karma. Jesus says, no, that's not what caused it. It wasn't somebody's fault. And, he says, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. People sometimes misunderstand this. The sense is not that God caused it somehow because he knew that one day Jesus would be passing by and he wanted to set him up with a miracle opportunity. That's, that's not it. The sense is that because it happened, the work of God would be made manifest. And the work of God is to relieve suffering, to heal misery, to fix that which is wrong. Why is it that so many nations send aid to a country when a natural disaster strikes, even sometimes when that nation is an enemy of theirs? Why do people stop what they are doing, fly halfway around the world, and help people that they don't even know dig through rubble in search for their lost kids? Why do they do that? Because God's work is to relieve suffering and we are made in his image. To heal misery is to allow a little bit of the image of God to come shining through. Christianity says suffering is real and suffering is not good. Paul says in Romans 8, here it is now, this is NIV, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice but by the will of him who subjected it. In other words, the way we see things now with pain and death is not the way it was intended to be, nor was it that way in the beginning. Now, there's been a long debate on who it is, uh, on who it's referring to here that subjected creation to decay and death. Who was that anyway? Was it Adam? when he chose to distrust God in the garden and unleash sin on the world? Or was it God? Well, 
How did things come to be the way they are? Do you remember what God said to Adam on the day he had to leave the Garden of Eden? Remember? He promised that a deliverer would come and undo the mistake to restore all things. You remember that. But God also pronounced a curse on two things. He pronounced a curse on who? Satan, right? Who had taken the form of a snake to deceive the woman. He is the great instigator of all that's wrong, by the way. We can't, we can't forget that. There is another powerful, malevolent being that has been unleashed upon the creation. He's loose. So God pronounced a curse on the snake, and he promised that although Satan would wound the deliverer to come, the deliverer would crush his head. How many of you remember that? Okay, you're, you're with me. In other words, Messiah would come and undo the damage. He would restore all things and he would do away with sin and the great instigator of it. But he cursed one other thing that day. God did. He cursed the ground. He cursed the environment. He told Adam, because you have unleashed this sin upon the world, this world will become frustrating for you. You'll have to contend with thorns and thistles. And you will also have to contend with death. It was a curse on account of sin. Death was never part of God's original plan. This is important to notice right here because what Paul has to say about creation in Romans 8, that it has been frustrated and that one day it will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and that it is presently groaning in pain, these are some of the very clearest statements in the New Testament that death and pain were never part of God's original plan. And you have to know this because there are a growing number of scholars and teachers in the church at large, and even some in the Adventist church who believe that death has always been a part of God's plan for the earth, long before there were any human beings here to sin. And you kind of have to believe that way if you believe that God used an evolutionary process to make the earth and life here on this planet and that he used millions and millions of years to do it, countless generations of plants and animals that lived and died all before there was a single human being on the earth because you have to account for the mass mortality beds, the fossils. But Paul is clear. And he bases what he says here on a very literal understanding of Genesis, that death came in because of sin. Death is not natural. Death is not a tool in the hands of God. Death is an enemy, an enemy. I saw a video clip last month. I wish I could unsee this one too. I probably should stop watching video clips. Yeah. A jaguar had come to the edge of a river at evening time to drink. He or she was an absolutely gorgeous animal, regal and stately. She warily crept to the edge of the riverbank and very carefully crouched to lap the water. 
And as she drank, the water in her face suddenly erupted with a huge crocodile that leapt from the water, grabbed her by the shoulders, and before she could spring back, drug her into the water, rolling over so that the jaguar was submerged. And the two beasts continued to roll, and when the cat came to the surface again, she was firmly in the jaws of the croc, biting him for all she was worth, fighting for her life. But the crocodile continued to roll, and they both submerged and never came up again. It was all over in less than five seconds. The mate of the jaguar watched from the riverbank. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Okay? People say, well, that's just nature's way. No, that is abnormal. That is aberrant. The whole creation groans. The whole creation groans. So Christianity teaches that suffering is real and that bad things do happen to innocent people and we are to work to relieve it. And we are to be compassionate, not for our sakes, that we will be blessed, but for the sakes of the ones who suffer. And number two, Christianity offers the most satisfying answer as to the source of the suffering, that it all goes back to the rebellion of perfect beings. Free-willed, rational beings have chosen to go it alone, apart from God, to mistrust God. And the result is decay in the entire system, a frustration of the whole created order, an order that originally had been very good. And so you say, come on, how can you blame the grinding of two tectonic plates of the earth's crust on a creation subjected to decay because of sin? How can you do that? I don't know. I don't understand the science of it. But it is the clear teaching of Scripture. And of all the, the explanations we've talked about so far, it is the most satisfying to me. It's one reason I'm a Christian. The King James uses a good word for this. It says that the whole world travails. It's an old word, but it has that ring to it. A great sorrow, great trouble, hardship. Eastern philosophy says that good and evil are co-equals, yin and yang. They have always existed. No, evil did not always exist. Evil had a beginning. Death had a beginning. God has existed from the days of eternity. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is without beginning of days or end of life. He was and is and is to come. And he is always good. He is only good. Scripture says that there is no darkness in him at all. No darkness at all. But evil had a beginning. It germinated in the heart of a perfect being on the day he said to himself, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Ezekiel 28 describes that mysterious day when evil germinated. Of Lucifer, it says, You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. When God made the world, we remember that it too was only good, only beautiful. Crocodiles didn't drown and devour jaguars. Earthquakes didn't bury human beings. 
over and over again in Genesis, the good God looks out on what he has made and he says, very, very good, very good. No darkness, no imperfection. Until the new perfect race of human beings God placed to live there made the same choice Lucifer made. And then evil began here too. How in the world could that have happened? God made perfect beings, but he made them with the capacity to choose. Skeptics will argue, why didn't God make people who would choose only the good? And of course, the reality is that in a world where love is the supreme ethic, freedom must be a reality. And where freedom is true freedom, the possibility to reject that love and live with the consequences must also be available. Even people who are hostile to Christianity understand this. The French, French existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote this. The man who wants to be loved does not desire the enslavement of the beloved. He is not bent on becoming the object of passion that flows forth mechanically. He does not want to possess an automaton. And if we want to humiliate him, we need try to only persuade him that the beloved's passion is the result of a psychological determinism. The lover will then feel that both his love and his being are cheapened. If the beloved is transformed into an automaton, the lover finds himself alone. In other words, love compelled brings loneliness. God didn't want to be lonely, so he had to make free people. Norman Geisler said, God made us free so we could be like him and love freely. But in making us that way, he allowed for the possibility of evil. Not the necessity of evil, the possibility of it. God took a risk. He made evil possible. But it was rebellious creatures who made it actual. It's like way back in the beginning, humanity kind of said, shove off God, and he did. He gave us space. And now the whole planet is infected. It's like an atomic bomb went off a long time ago, and we're still dealing with the fallout and the radiation. Not only because of the rebellion that happened a long time ago in a garden, but because of the one that continues to happen every day in our hearts. One of the shortest letters to, to an editor ever penned was written by G.K. Chesterton. It read, Dear Sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Paul says the whole creation was subjected to frustration, held in bondage to decay, groaning in pain. We tend to think that life ought to be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. Life is in rebellion, and therefore, much of what happens is just not fair. The minor irritations that we put up with every day are not fair. 
The terrible catastrophes that wipe out hundreds of thousands of people have absolutely nothing to do with fairness. Do you know what they are? They are unmistakable evidences that things are not the way they should be. That something is terribly and desperately wrong. This isn't natural. The machine is broken. In fact, the real wonder is not that terrible things happen, but that life is as good as it is for so many of us. That's the miracle. As C.S. Lewis wrote, the question is not, why do the innocent suffer? The question is, why don't we suffer more? And of course, the truth is that God has done something about evil. For one thing, he has placed limits on it. He's put a, a, a hedge, a boundary, a fence beyond which it cannot go. Uh, you try telling that to Turkish parents whose kids are still buried in their bedrooms, and you're right, that's tough, that would, that would be difficult. But Scripture does give us a word picture to let us know that evil is not unlimited. It says that there are four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back winds of trouble, although it does predict that as the planet nears the end of its probationary time, this demonstration of what rebellion brings... Those angels will relax their hold and things will get a lot worse as evil makes its final surge. But in the meantime, God operates under a policy of containment. As bad as suffering is, it can be a vehicle for something good. Although he doesn't cause it, God can use it to get our attention. People think about God when things are going wrong. They don't think about him too much when things are going right. Isn't that odd? To quote C.S. Lewis again, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. He is a megaphone. Suffering is a megaphone to a deaf world. So, what's the good news this morning? The good news is... Just as evil had a beginning, it will also have an end. Only Christianity points forward to the restoration of all things. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We have a hope that this groaning planet will be liberated from its bondage to decay one day. And that day is coming, all right? Paul says all creation is waiting eagerly for it, like it's upon tiptoe waiting for it to happen. I like how the message version says this. The created world itself can hardly wait for, what God's com for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Doesn't that sound good? He promises a world where tears are forever wiped away and injustices are made right. In that world, we will look back upon what we have suffered in this life and we will truthfully be able to say, 
however terrible it was, it is not worth comparing to this. Now, I don't know. I, I can't imagine the enormity of the miracle. But even Syrian children and Turkish earthquake victims will one day be able to make that confession because evil is not immortal. It had a beginning. It will have an end. And the end of evil is guaranteed by one singular event that took place on planet Earth, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus shared our flesh and blood. He willingly came to earth and took part in our suffering. He allowed the full force of evil to slowly crush out his life in the greatest catastrophe this world has ever known. He was the ultimate innocent who suffered the ultimate disaster. And yet, through that disaster, he somehow paid the price to end the rebellion so that we can be forgiven and have hope, hope that we indeed will live again one day in a perfect world. By his wounds, we're healed. And the proof of that is the empty tomb. The proof of that suffering will end is the empty tomb. Evil could not have the final word with him, and evil will not have the final word with us. There is absolutely no parallel in any other worldview to the empty tomb. People go on pilgrimage to see Muhammad's tomb. And guess what? He's still in it. The Buddha died and was cremated. No talk of a resurrection. Confucius, dead and gone. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. Sam Harris accuses God of murder when a child drowns in its crib. What he forgets is God, who allowed the life to be snuffed out, can restore that child to life and make it live again. God can do that. He can give life. We cannot. He can wake the dead. In fact, he already has. He raised Jesus. The tomb is empty. Liberation is coming. Suffering will end. So I want to end with a statement that you might find helpful. It's written by Dorothy Sayer. She was a Christian writer. She wrote a lot of crime novels, but she was also a Christian, and she wrote on Christianity too. She lived from 1898 to 1957. She writes, For whatever reason God chose to make mankind as he did, limited, suffering, and subject to sorrows and death, Christianity says that God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from a man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it well worthwhile. And I might add, that he thought it well worthwhile because he knew that as a result of his having done so, we will one day be liberated from our bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children 
of God.